This episode is powered by TrackMan Golf. This podcast is also proudly brought to you by Aerotech Golf Shafts. With more Pro Tour wins than any other graphite iron shaft in history, steel fiber golf shafts by Aerotech Golf are a true game changer. Aerotech's innovative designs and unique material engineering help players sharpen their game while reducing fatigue and injury. This podcast is also brought to you by Super Speed Golf. Would you like to hit the ball 20 yards farther? With the Super Speed Golf training system, this can become a reality. Super Speed uses the scientifically proven methods of overspeed training to help increase how fast your body can move during your swing. This works with a set of three specifically weighted clubs used only three times per week, 10 minutes a session, following online training protocols. Join over 700 tour pros by getting your set at superspeedgolf.com. Use the code SHKEEN, S-H-K-E-E-N, to receive 10% off your order. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. We are going to start this week off before the interview uh, by doing a monthly mailbag episode. I think we're due. We haven't done one in about a month and a half, I want to say. Obviously, with the holidays and everything, it was a little tougher, but uh, we got about 10 plus questions written down here that I really like that I would love to address to people uh, that I thought were personally were interesting. And um, yeah, I'll have Brandon read out the questions as always, and I'll do my best to explain them to you guys. Perfect. Yeah, I got a long list of questions here, so we'll just start off with the first one. Um, is it true it takes 10,000 hours to make a swing change? This is a really good one, I think. Yeah, when I read that, I kind of laughed. Um, so obviously, there's a big myth going around, and already you know my answer just based on the fact that I called it a myth. Yeah. Uh, going around that it takes 10,000 hours to make a swing change, I guess, natural or comfortable, whatever. Completely disagree with that. Uh, we were even having a conversation with Mark Blackburn last week. He also disagreed with that. Uh, complete BS. The answer is no, it does not take 10,000 hours. Change is extremely subjective, just like learning. Well, I guess learning is the change, right? So learning is subjective. You know, a, a person might come to me and need to change the way their wrist angle is moving in the golf swing. It might take one player uh, who's maybe a little less uh, athletically coordinated. You know, his coordination isn't great. Um, You know, he might just not have the skill set to learn it very fast. It might take that person four, five, six months to make a swing change. And however many hours that is. Uh, And then the next person might come to me with the exact same issue uh and would be working on it for maybe a very very small fraction of that amount of time that the first guy did or the first woman did and they might learn it and become comfortable with it really fast and it might take that person a week or two weeks you know because everybody learns at their own rate uh there is no such thing as it takes ten thousand hours it might take somebody six hours it might take someone else 600 hours there's just no set standard and our goal as coaches is to provide the best information possible and the best uh, feels and awareness as possible for the player to learn it as quickly as possible. But by no means can we guarantee that it takes a certain amount of time. I just think that's ex- extremely flawed. Yeah, you also hear like people saying it takes 10,000 hours to like master something or become a professional at it, um, especially in sports or some sort of like physical skill. And I think that's also not true. I mean, you can be practicing something wrong 
you know, the wrong way for 10,000 hours that won't make you a pro. It's really when you're practicing with intent and with the correct information. So, um, yeah, I just, no, we can, we can go on that for a long time. Let's just say that it's a, a flawed mindset in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Are golf clubs really getting better? That's another question. Yeah. I put that in for one reason, because I've been seeing a lot of debates online of people, uh, saying, why do I always want to have to buy the new year's equipment? Uh, you know, how can it be that this year's equipment is better than last year's equipment and so on? Well, this is the way I can explain it best. Okay. If you take any club from the year 2000 and you try hitting it and you take any club from the year 2015 and you try hitting it and you take any club from the year 2020 and you try hitting it, you're going to notice a difference in everything from the way the strike feels, how forgiving it is to, um, you know, the ball speed and club speed that you're generating and just the overall overall usability of the club. You know, if you're hitting a driver from 1990 and you're hitting a driver from 2020, you're going to notice a huge difference. Now, you might not personally notice within the numbers from a year-to-year basis uh, the differences between the clubs, but they are guaranteed improving enough to where if you look at them from, let's say, a five-year jump, there is a massive difference in the performance of the club. And again you know, it takes a coach to nitpick the numbers enough to pick apart those differences of a couple of yards or a couple of miles an hour ball speed or, uh, you know, a degree or two more forgiveness on a year-to-year basis, which is still factual. But with if you take a five-year period, you're, you're going to notice the differences in the clubs and the performance of the equipment immediately. And so clubs are 100% getting better. Now, another argument that everybody makes everywhere on the internet is, oh, but the lofts are getting stronger. Yes, the lofts are getting stronger. I'm not denying that you're going to hit an eight iron now uh, longer than you're going to hit an eight iron of 20 years ago. Of course you are. But even if you look at the lofts and you compare the same loft from one year to the next, you'll still notice a huge difference. So I'm not saying that you're not going to hit an eight iron better now than you're going to hit an eight iron that came out in 1990. Of course you are. The lofts are stronger. Like I said, it's going to generate more ball speed for the most part. But if you take, let's say, a 37 degree lofted club from 10 years ago, and you take a 37 degree lofted club now, and you remove this whole uh, number comparison from the equation, you're still going to notice a massive difference in the forgiveness of the club and just the performance of it overall. And so, you know, us as experts in what we do, we're going to notice a difference on a year to year basis. Maybe your 25 handicap might not from one year to the next, but if you're looking at jumps of three to five years, you're absolutely going to notice a difference. So clubs are for sure getting better. Uh, I mean, Brandon, you can put your input on that as well, but that's kind of where my mindset is. Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely true that clubs are getting better every year. I mean, just with the fact of technology, their construction is getting better. The materials they use are getting better. Um, I mean, how can you avoid that? Innovation advances, computer technology and AI get involved. And all of a sudden, every year, you know, the market moves with the trends and companies try to, you know, make products that are going to make um, for a happier market. I mean, you could look at it and compare it with cars. Every year, new cars come out. Every year, there's a new Honda Civic, right? And uh, and people buy them. Why? Because there's new features, better construction. Um, are you going to buy, you know, a 2020 Honda Civic when you have a 2019? Probably not. But can you say that the 2020 is better? Probably. So are clubs getting better? Yes. Does that mean that you need to buy every single year a new set of clubs? No. Um, you know. That's pretty much my take on it. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good analogy. It's true, right? So if you have the virtually the latest model and the new year comes out, no, you might not be enticed to want to buy it and spend that money. And I totally understand that from a consumer perspective. 
But if you look at it as in you have a 2015 Honda and you want to buy the 2020, yeah, there's going to be a massive difference in the features it offers and and just their overall functionality of the car and, and what you can do with it. So, uh, yeah, great analogy. Yeah. Next question. Let's do it. Awesome. Um, next question here. How do I prevent the trail heel from lifting too early in the downswing? Wow, we went from super general to super specific. <laughs> to be honest, I didn't really order the questions. Um, yeah, that's fine. It's better like that, I guess. So, yeah, in that way, I, I prevent- kind of just sent you the bulk of the questions when I wrote them down. So. Yeah. Very possible that we might bounce back and forth from general to scientific, but that's cool. Um, I'll repeat it for everyone. How do I, how prevent, do I prevent the trail heel? Yeah. Sorry, go. Yeah, from lifting too early in the downswing. Um, well, as a starting point, you know, I think you need to address why the trail heel is coming up because if you don't address that, you can't prevent it from happening. You know, it's uh, kind of a cop out of an answer, but it's just a truthful answer. A lot of the issues that players deal with late in the downswing and the trail trail heel coming up too much. So for the right-handed golfer, the right foot, you know, the right heel not staying planted on the floor and coming up a lot. A lot of times that is being done because your body's reacting to another variable that's out of position. And the byproduct of the reaction that your body's doing is that the heel comes off the floor. So you can look at the swing change in one of two ways. You can try to keep the heel planted on the floor and maybe it's going to get your body to move slightly differently and maybe it'll give you a little more consistency. But the approach that I would take as a, as a coach is why does the heel come up? Because if you can establish the why behind that uh, problem, you can come up with the solution, right? If you get rid of the necessity to have to lift the heel, the heel won't lift anymore. And so a lot of times there's something else somewhere within the golf swing that is limiting your body from keeping the foot planted on the floor and the reaction of the body when it's trying to correct that variable, whatever that variable is, uh, the reaction from that is that the heel lifts too early in the downswing. But golfers tend to focus on that part of it because it's very easy. You know, cosmetically, you see it. Like, uh, you know, the aesthetics of it is the heel comes up, golfer sees that, freaks out and says, oh, well, I want to keep a planet. Right, but we're maybe not necessarily understanding the reasoning behind it. So figuring out the why is a cop-out answer, but it's also the truthful answer. Yeah, I agree with that. Um... Not really much to add there. I guess I would say just exactly what you said. So how do you address tilt issues in the downswing? Um, Okay, so I want to talk about the pivot a little bit here because I would say that the number one question I got asked was that, was about posture through the ball and pivot stuff. And if you look at my work on social media, uh, very often I'm dealing with really good players who just have some horrific tilts going through the golf ball, early extending, stalling, flipping, uh, standing up too much, just not rotating a lot. Uh, and I, I can cure those pretty quick. I feel like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very confident in my skill level of getting a player to pivot better. So when it comes to that, uh, how do you address it? Well, first of all, let's look at what the pivot is. You know, if we understand what the pivot is, we can understand how to address the problem. The pivot is a 3D movement pattern of your body. So I, I, the way I try to explain it to people is, you know, the body moves in three different directions if we're looking at it in a simplified fashion. And again, I cannot stress this enough. This is very simplified, but I'm trying to make it easy for people to understand. Um, There is a rotational component, which is the one that people focus on the most often. So just rotating to the right, rotating to the left, right? Spinning in a circle. There is a lateral component to the pivot, which is how much is the mass of your body moving from one direction to the next, right? So that would be left and right. And then there is a T 
tilting component, which is the side bends that you have. So you can think of like, if I'm just standing very upright and tall, dropping my right shoulder towards my right hip, that gets me into right side bend, dropping my left shoulder towards my left hip, that gets me into left side bend. So like crunching the rib cage, you can think of it that way visually. All three, three of those components work together to uh, work the pivot. Now, if we dive into a more advanced explanation of that, there's also pressure we're applying through the ground, but I'm trying to keep this as simple as possible. So how do you address the tilt issues? Well, whenever there is too much of one of those three components, it gets really hard for a player to do one of the other ones. So too much of any of those three is no good. If you have too much rotation without the proper tilting, you're not going to strike the ball very efficiently. If you have too much of the lateral component, it gets very difficult to add the rotation to that. If you have too much of the tilting component, it gets also really hard to create rotation with that. So avoiding extremes to any of those three elements is vital to making sure that you do enough of all of the three. And so when we are addressing tilt issues in the downswing with a player, the starting point is let's verify what those three elements are doing, those three components, seeing if one of them is done in extreme, in excess. Can we limit that? And will that facilitate an improvement in one of the others? And so when I'm working with really good players, if a player is sliding too much, they're likely not going to be rotating very well. And whenever we see players slide a lot, we see a lot of low point issues. We see a lot of club path extremes from the inside more often than not. Uh, and, and there's a lack of rotation, which obviously makes it really difficult to also create the appropriate amount of shaffling and so on. And we can dive into all that kind of detail. And so when you address tilt issues in the downswing, really what we are looking at is not just the tilting component itself, but how all three of those elements work together. And I cannot stress that enough how important that actually is when we are talking about the pivot as a whole. Yeah. So basically understanding all three will help you understand what kind of issues you can have in the downswing. Pretty much. Yeah. So the next question I guess I can ask you here on this list is what do you look at to define open or closed club face from roughly P2 through P6? Do you compare face angle to wrist, spine to some other point of reference, or is it more intuitive? Very, very, very specific. Uh, very specific question. So I guess the simplified version of that question would be, how do you define what's considered open or closed from the club face uh, when you look at it from the takeaway through late in the downswing, let's say. Um, and so to me, I just look at the club face itself. I actually don't look at anything like face angle compared to wrist, face angle compared to golf ball, face angle compared to spine or anything like that. I know that those are sources of reference that people like to look at, and I understand that, but I just look at what is the actual face angle itself doing. So is the toe of the club more pointed down to the ground? Is the toe of the club not pointed down to the ground? If we're talking about P2, if we're talking about the top of the backswing, you know, is the toe, again, pointed down to the ground? The club face is likely very open. If the club face is looking at the sky, which means that the toe of the club head is not pointed down to the ground at the top of the backswing, that would make the club face more shut. And so I don't necessarily look at the club face in relation to a certain body part or anything like that. They are great pieces of references if you want to visualize them that way. And I get that. People visualize things very differently. But I look at the club face in a very isolated fashion. Is the club face open or closed? Now, how or why it's open or closed, then we can look at the wrist angles and the grip and all those other areas. 
But if we're just looking at how to define a club face open or close, I'm not looking at it in reference to anything besides the actual club face itself. Um, and then it can get even more scientific of does that club face angle late in the downswing match the release pattern the player has? Well, that's a whole nother conversation. But, uh, you know, some people like to look at the club face and the takeaway in relation to the spine angle. I use that reference a lot in my online lessons. So even I use that reference when I'm explaining it to a player to help them understand. Um, you know, if the club face matches the spine angle and the takeaway, oftentimes we are bent over in our golf swing or pretty much always. So having the toe a little more pointed down gets you a little more closed. Um, so I, I just look at the club face itself. I'm not looking at it in relation to a body part, I guess, is the is the answer there. Fair enough. So if a player came to you and asked you any good drills to practice shallow fades, what would you say? If a player came to me and asked for any good drills to practice shallow fades, well, what is a shallow fade? A shallow fade is a shaft pitch that is relatively shallow, meaning the golfer is not fading the ball by coming in too steep on it with the actual pitch of the shaft, right? Yeah. Um, and they are hitting a fade, meaning a fade can happen in one of two ways. It can be a push cut, right? Or it can be a pull fade. And those are actually done very differently. I hope people understand that. You know, a push cut is the club face is open to the path, right? And the club face is slightly open at impact. So uh, a push cut could be a one degree open face at impact and a zero degree path. That golfer is not swinging left as a right-handed golfer through the golf ball. He's coming into the golf ball dead straight with his path. Face angle slightly open. Ball starts out a little bit to the outside and fades. Now, if it's very minor, like if those numbers are, are close together, there's not going to be a lot of curve and you can still play that. You know, aim a little left, let's say, as a right-handed golfer and play a mini push cut. And there's a lot of tour players who do that. But then there's also tour players who play pull fades, which is where the face angle is actually slightly closed at impact. So let's say like two degrees closed but the path is even more outside in and the ball will still fade. So uh, a good drill to practice shallow fades, number one, get the pitch of the shaft shallow. That's something that's clearly necessary for that to work. So the shaft angle has to be laying down. And then from there, add any sort of element to that golf swing to get the path left enough as a right-handed golfer. Again, get the path more outside in so that the ball, you make sure that it fades. And so you can have a club shallowing out and the club shaft gets very shallow in the downswing. But if the golfer is rotating enough, they might actually hit fades, right? And I do this a lot with players. Or you can remove depth to the hands in the backswing. Don't get the arm structure too flat because if the arms get too flat and they stay too far from the inside, it gets really hard to get the path outside in. So if you look at like Rory, for example, Rory has a shaft angle that's very shallow in the downswing. He also has a lot of depth to the hands. And so really hard for him to play fades unless he's push cutting the ball and aiming way left. So he would be somebody who would be more of a draw biased player. So you have to have the shaft angle be in a shallow position, but then you also have to have elements within your swing to make sure that the path gets more from the outside. And that could be either less depth to the hands. It could be a lot of body rotation in the downswing. It could be all sorts of other elements, but those are uh, the, I guess the, the macro way of looking at how to practice a shallow fade. Then from there, the drill is subjective to what you need to change to do that. Fair enough. If a player came to you with multiple issues in their swing, how do you know which to address first? So what would be the first thing that you'd probably look at based on their swing if they had multiple problems? If a player came to you with multiple multiple issues in their swing, how do you know which ones to address first? Well, I, I kind of spoke about this in the coach camp, but I have always been a coach who takes a very back-to-front approach to the golf swing. 
And so what that means is I look at what the golfer's obviously doing in the setup and all that, but I look at what is the ball flight doing? Why is the ball flight doing that? And then we track, then we track it back. So we look at, okay, the golfer is hitting pull hooks. Okay, fine. So you look at the golfer at impact, not a lot of body rotation. Okay, fine. Is there a reason why that golfer doesn't have a lot of body rotation? Maybe because the shaft is too steep and they're trying to stall, or maybe the golfer's pivot is not great. Okay, trace it back. What does the club face look like? And then you go back to the setup. So obviously the setup is always the starting point because it's the first thing you're going to see with every player. You know, the setup and the grip are, are very obvious, but that doesn't mean that those are the problems. So uh, if a player came to you with multiple issues in your swing, well, trace it back, you know, start from the, from the end of why there's a ball flight issue and then look backwards and look backwards and see if the problem starts early on, or if it starts only later in the golf swing. Uh, so how do you know which ones to address first? Well, where does the root cause come from? The root cause is where you address it first at the end of the day, you know, you're not going to address a flip through the ball. If the golfer has to flip because they're stalling for another reason. Right. So that's not where you would start. That's the byproduct of a problem that's elsewhere. So figuring out what the root cause is by this back to front approach is always what I've done. That doesn't mean it's the only way to teach the game. It's just how I've always come to analyze the golf swing. Figuring out the root cause is where you know where to address first. That's the answer. You know, what's a good analogy for that is kind of like thinking of a rope with like a bunch of knots. You know, if you fix one knot, the first knot you see, it doesn't mean your rope will be unknotted. So you kind of have to figure out the core, like that first, that deep knot, you know, to get it all undone. So once you get the right knot undone, it all comes apart. But if, if you're just doing superficially those top knots, like you won't, you won't, you won't fix that rope. So I don't know. That's kind it's of good. It's very, very good analogy, by the way. I've actually never heard of that before, but I like it. Yeah. So here, one, good of, stuff. These two, <laughs> one of these two questions, I guess I'll, I'll ask this one. How did, how did golf on Instagram go from all about the swing plane to all about matchups? Is a good question for you. Uh, I would say that this happened. First of all, I don't know if golf Instagram was ever about swing playing. You know, the Instagram golf world only started getting big when matchups was already starting to get big, I would say. Or it was right around the same time that it happened. So uh, let's say, how did the golf world go from all about swing playing to all about matchups? I think that's a better question. Um, you know, with the advancement in technology and the advancement in understanding how the club is being delivered to the ball, it's just, you know, why, why was uh, something scientific beforehand in terms of medicine all about something that it used to be about and then now it's all about something else? Well, it's because they figured out that one of those areas was wrong or they were doing it inefficiently. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think as we learn more, helps. yeah, as we learn more, and we are learning more too as coaches. I mean, everybody's learning more. As we learn more, we have better information to help the player and so the idea of this one swing fits all method starts to look less and less like the efficient way to teach a golf swing. So as we have had track mans come out and body tracks come out and all these other tools and softwares to help us quantify things that we can't see with the eye, we can make much better assessments towards what the player needs to do with their swing and all of a sudden, you start to figure out, hey, maybe everybody doesn't need to grip the club the same way. Everybody doesn't need to use their wrist the same way. And, uh, you know, our bodies are built differently. So how can I get a player who is 400 pounds to swing the same way as a guy who's hyperflexible and has and is 100 pounds? Uh, you know, they just they, those two golfers will not be able to move the club the same way. They're, you're going to have to fit one to his body type. So uh, and the other as well. And so 
you know, when we are talking about the golf swing as information progresses, uh, the coaching world progresses with that. And I don't think that is just to golf. I would say that that's the case with every industry everywhere in the world. Yeah, I would, I would kind of also link it to social media. If you think about it before, like traditional media has some sort of control as to what they're publishing. So for years and years and years, the magazines, um, the websites, the TV you watch, you know, they decide and they choose what kind of narrative that they want to they want to publish. Right. And so they're going to go with what's comfortable, what what's worked in the past, um, because golfers want to see that and they like seeing that, you know. Um, but with the advancement of social media, you have new people coming out with new ideas and it allows for the market um, to find what, you know, to find something new. It gives new ideas, discoverability. People like you all of a sudden have a voice to be able to say what they want. And if people agree with you, they'll just start following you. Whereas, you know, if you want to be published in a magazine, the magazine has to choose to publish you. So it's kind of like a paradigm shift in the way of, of sharing information. And so with the, the spread of social media, it gives people the option to, to find different voices and see what they like. And then if your voice is correct, you're going to be validated with just with the amount of people who follow you and agree with you. So I think that's kind of another aspect to how it kind of switched from an older way of thinking to the newer way of thinking. I agree. I agree yeah. completely. Yeah. Um, not really much else to say on that one. Um, here's another interesting one. Keep I jumping down a bit. Let's do the swing like terminology one. question. I like that one. Or the... Um, yeah, this, I'm just I don't know, read any them of them. All. Up There's to you. a bunch of good ones, but I'll, I'll say, yeah, swing terminology for the layperson. I mean, I don't even know if that's really a question, but I guess they just want us to say and explain what certain things mean. Swing terminology, I'll keep it short and sweet because there could be like millions of things I can say on this. Yeah. Um, the most common words we use are, if we're talking scientifically, because I'm assuming he means like the more complex words, he or she. I don't know who asked this question. Um, Lead and trail. You know, flexion and extension and internal and external rotation. Uh, these are just movements of the body. So uh, anatomically, what is the wrist doing when it is flexing versus when it is extending? I use those words a lot. Well, if you are curling the knuckles of the hand under the forearm, almost like you're trying to flex the inside of your forearm, that is called flexion. If you are hinging the knuckles above the form, almost like you're trying to, let's say, like hold a tray above your hand, that would be called extension. Um, those are words that we use a lot. Another way to now, think of flexion and extension, some... just, I just want to quickly add is whatever muscle that is controlling that body part, imagine flexing. When it contracts, that's a flex. When it stretches, that's an extend, right? So your bicep, when you bring your fist to your shoulder, that's a flexion. And when you bring your, your fist away from your shoulder, that's an extension. So if you can think and imagine of your body parts in that sense, the main muscle controlling that body part, you can kind of grasp as to what's a flexion and what's an extension. Yeah, and that relates to every body part. I mean, they all move that way, right? So, um, you know, some of the golf swing terminology we use beyond flex, extend, and rotations of stuff Lead and uh, are... Not even, yeah, I guess lead and trail is pretty simple. You know, when you're looking at the lead side, you're looking at which side of your body is leading the movement. As simplified as that sounds, that's what it is. So as a right-handed golfer, I am rotating towards my left side. 
in the downswing, right? So my lead side would be the side that is ahead, that is leading the rest of my body. So my left side becomes my lead side. My right side is at the back end of how my body is moving. It is trailing the rest of my body. So my right side becomes my trail side. Uh, so lead and trail would be explained, I guess, in that light. Uh, we use a lot like P1, P2, P3, things like that. Um, really simple. Every P represents a different part of the golf swing. So uh, P1 is your setup position, meaning when I am standing over the ball in that static position before I begin the movement, that is considered P1. P2 would be when the shaft gets to parallel with the ground. We call that like the takeaway. That is P2. And then you can keep going up to P4, which would be the top of the backswing. Um, and, and it goes down that way. So every P is a different point within the golf swings movement pattern. Uh, we just use those terms to simplify at what point of the golf swing we're talking about, as opposed to always saying, hey, when the shaft is parallel to the ground in the backswing, you can just say, hey, at P2, what is going on? So uh, that's just a, a, almost like a shortcut of explaining the position in the, within the swing. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of some others. Obviously there's a lot of stuff I can talk about, but I don't want to confuse our audience too much either. I, I mean, it's, it's tough to kind of get into this because you have a bunch of technological terms. You can talk about things that you see on TrackMan. Um, there's club information you can talk about, you know, uh, terms that are all there. Yeah, so but let's, let's keep it simple for now. And yeah, let's just move on. I think jump if, into another question. If you guys have any questions about terminology, you can just always send us a message. We'll answer it. We, we might even do a post on it to kind of explain, um, you know, some of the, the, the more scientific and specific terms. Um, but for now we'll just go on to the next one. Um, talk about a pre-round routine for a player. Or just in general, talk about pre-round routines. I think that's a good question. What's important? Let's I mean, pre-round routines. What's important in a pre-round routine? Or let's say even a pre-hole. Getting routine, your body right. Routine. Yeah. The most important part of any pre-shot, pre-round routine would be getting your body physically able to ready to move. So I would argue that either doing stretching or doing a small workout in the gym. Uh, preparing your muscles and activating your muscles to be able to move uh, and bend and twist your body in the ways in which the golf swing requires is your number one important thing. So if you had the choice between stretching for 10 minutes and hitting balls for 10 minutes before playing around a golf, well, I would tell you that stretching for 10 minutes is more important, if I'm being honest. I'll, um, I'll, can I just say one thing if, there? And uh, we had an interview. I mean, you with can say as many things as you want. <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted to, want to interrupt, but we had an interview with the prehab guys and um, and for fitness golf, and they both said kind of the same thing. There's two things. One is when you're warming up for your round of golf, you want to make sure that your warm ups are dynamic. So don't just stand there and you know bend your knees and and try to stretch in a static position because static stretching before any kind of exercise or workout is the worst possible thing for your body. So what I mean by dynamic is is something that's fluid in motion, right? So you want to be turning. And, you know, slowly swinging your club, feeling your whole body move, your wrists, your knees, your joints, your ankles, all these kinds of things that are dynamic are going to help warm up your joints and your muscles. Anything static is just going to stretch it and your muscles and joints won't get warm. They'll stay cold. So it's definitely something that's important to avoid injury. Um, and the second thing is that obviously, you, like you just alluded to, you know, anything that uh, requires motion requires you to kind of get into that 
physical state. So there's no way you'll be able to swing your club as efficient and as fast as you want with the mental focus that you want just by getting out of your car, unloading your bag, walking up to the first tee and hitting a ball. You know, so whether that's mentally preparing yourself by getting to the range and just hitting a few shots with intent or going on the putting green and putting a few shots with intent, just that will help your mind get into the mindset of of focusing on your golf swing, bring back all of that subconscious muscle memory and, and movement memory, and that'll definitely help alongside with your dynamic uh, stretching. So just to add to uh, what Brandon's saying, if we're talking about the preparation, not just on the physical side, but on the um, you know swing side, if you look at most tour players, they're not necessarily hitting every club when they're uh, going through a pre-round routine. A lot of times it's, you know, they'll hit five sand wedges, they'll hit five or 10 eight irons, five or 10 long irons, uh, five or 10 three wood drivers, and then they'll typically end their last ball of the session with whatever they're going to start their round with. So if they're hitting three wood off the first tee, probably going to finish their pre-round routine with a, with a three wood. And then spend a little bit of time um, on the chipping and putting area, and, and, and that's about it. You know, at the end of the day, I think people get too extreme either one direction or the other. They either show up really last second and, you know, at the end of the day, you you get what you put in. So if you show up at the last second and you run straight to the first tee, don't expect to hit a magical tee shot on the first tee. Odds are probably not going to happen. Uh, it's unfortunate. It's a harsh answer, but it's the truth. Or you tend to see people over-exaggerate the other way, which is, you know, they show up before the round an hour and a half or two hours before hitting all kinds of different shots, hitting two big buckets before the round. Also very useless in my opinion, because you're going to burn yourself out. You're going to be very tired. And if you're searching before the round, you're not going to magically find it 10 minutes before you're about to tee off. So um, the truthful answer is there is like an ideal amount, you know, do your little uh, gym session and you're stretching and all that. And as soon as that's done, I mean, you really only need about half an hour, 40 minutes before your round to hit, um, you know, like I said, 30, 40 balls uh, just to prepare, loosen up, and then spend the appropriate amount of time that you specifically need on chipping and putting, however long that is. You know, some people would like to practice putting a little more than others. Some are good putters, some are not. I totally understand that. Um, you know, the amount of time within each section is going to be very subjective, but uh, 30 to 40 minutes usually as a pre-round routine after you've done your physical part preparation uh, is more than enough. You don't need to be there for two hours before your round starts. Yeah, that's another definitely valid points on top of what I had mentioned about the physical. So definitely take that into consideration next time you guys go out there and, and want to shoot a good and decent round. Or even if you're practicing, all these things should be considered. So I think let's let's do one more question before we head over to our interview. Um, and I'll ask you, should you take lessons to improve your game, even if you're a beginner and have never taken lessons before? I think this is a good question for a lot of people because... Uh, people can definitely have hesitation when it comes to starting a new sport. Uh, so should beginners take lessons? Yes. I mean, obviously my answer is going to be very biased because I am a coach, but at the same time, you know, if I'm going to practice something and I want to get better, let's say I wanted to start learning how to play the piano. I'm not going to stand over the piano or I guess in this case, sit in front of the piano and try to magically figure out how my finger should be working on the keys to be able to create some sort of fluent tune or tone or whatever. You know, I'm going to get help from someone to create some sort of solid foundation, some sort of base of which I can start to practice. And so do you need to spend a whole ton of money if you're a beginner and you just want to start getting a little bit better? I mean, no, obviously not, you know, 
But at the same time, why would you want to sit there clueless, or in this case, in the, for golf, stand over, over the ball clueless of how you should be standing, how you should be holding the club, how you should move your body, uh, and try to figure things out on your own and waste all this time guessing and checking when you can create some sort of foundation with uh, the help of someone. You know, I would not say that there's a million world-class golf coaches out there. But I would say that there are more than enough really good coaches out there to help beginners create a solid foundation. You know, obviously, as you start dealing with better players, things get more specific. I get that side of it. And I understand the fear of somebody wanting to take a lesson who's a really good player and afraid of messing up or maybe not juggling well with the coach. But most of the golf coaches out there can do a really good job of creating that foundation with a beginner. And it sets you off on the right foot. It doesn't let you get comfortable with bad habits. You know, if you stand there on the range and you're practicing without a coach, even if you're a beginner, you're going to start to get comfortable with the way in which you're moving the club. And that might have to change as soon as you go see a coach at some point. And so why would you want to ingrain that muscle memory and develop all these bad tendencies that are going to have to be reworked as soon as you take a lesson when you can just start off right from the get-go and prevent yourself from making those bad, those bad habits kind of sink in. So, uh, just like anything else you're trying to learn, I think that creating that foundation is very important. And uh, there's more than enough, like I said, golf coaches out there to help with that. So I personally think that it's never a bad idea to take lessons, even if you do not play the sport and even if you're just starting out. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think one thing um, to understand is just there's a stigma in golf where people tend to think that they have the answers um, when they don't really have the answers. Like you had said once, the blind leading the blind. You know, you wouldn't trust your buddy or your friend to give you a quick tip when it comes to, you know, building your house or playing an instrument. Uh, you know, like things like this where there's so many things that go into the education and learning part of it, especially when it's something complex. You know, you, you, you would really want a professional's advice. And when it comes to sports, obviously, it's not as a serious thing. So people tend to just, you know, shoot tips out to each other on the driving range, on the starting tee or whatever. And, you know, you, you, can, you can maybe see some short-term gain and then, you know, fall right back into your old habits. I think it's really important to understand that, obviously, with everything, there's, there's some level of profession there that a coach can obviously help you with in terms of giving you the correct information and then you're just taking that information and practicing with intent. So like you said, you don't need to spend a lot of money. You don't need to spend a lot of time around the coach, but you do need to spend some meaningful time uh, and some uh, intentful practice. And you'll obviously see improvements. So I definitely agree with you. Um, and that's our last I want to uh, just, yeah, I just want to end on one thing before yeah, we jump sure. into the interview about this, the blind, the blind leading the blind. Yeah. Um, there is a fear in golf or I, I would say certainly within beginners, that their coach is not a good player, okay? Now, I will say that if you want to be a high-level coach in the world of golf, I do believe you need to have a solid foundation of skills to be able to perform to a certain extent. You know, you don't want a coach who can't break 100 trying to teach you the game of golf. That's an awful decision, in my opinion. And I strongly stand by that because if the coach knows what he's doing, he shouldn't be shooting 100, no matter how good he is, how bad his coordination is or whatever. That's just the reality of it. But at the same time, you know, 
the coach doesn't need to be out there shooting 67. He just needs to be able to be smart enough and good enough to fix his things to keep his game respectable. And so when I am standing on the driving range as a coach working with someone and I see a guy standing next to me topping nine balls in a row and then he's trying to teach his buddy next to him how to hit the ball, well, that is an awful decision because this person is incapable of fixing their strike enough not to top the ball after nine straight attempts and you want them to tell you what you should be doing. And so when I reference the blind leading the blind, essentially no coach should be topping the ball nine times in a row. Like this is kind of the point I'm trying to make. So don't expect your coach to be this world-class player every single time. I wouldn't even consider myself a world-class player. I'm a fairly good player. I'm very above average and I can hold my own against a lot of people. I'm not some world-class elite, you know, failed mini tour player. So, um, and, and clearly a lot of people have put their faith in, in me and my instruction. So when I say the blind leading the blind, I just wanted to reference like, if the guy is incapable of helping himself with some very obvious big issues that like he can't even get the ball in the air, please don't seek him or her for advice. And if your friend is there shooting 110 on the golf course, even if you're shooting 130, I can guarantee you that person is very unlikely to figure out what you're doing wrong. This is just the reality of it. So stop listening to your friends, please. Get qualified instruction. Doesn't need to be from me. Could be from any coach anywhere. But find someone who has some sort of a respectable game and has the knowledge and skill set to at least be able to help you to that extent. So um, I clearly sound very heated when I talk about this stuff, but it's just no, because it's I've seen this experience happen over and over again. Sorry? It's definitely, it's definitely true because I, 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 and I experienced it secondhand through you, people sometimes asking about you know how, what, what you play or, or trying to understand how good their coach is so that they can validate their coach's information. I mean, you look at any major sport, any Olympic athlete, the athlete is there because they have talent, but their trainer help them perfect that talent. You know, NFL coaches, are they the best quarterbacks or wide receivers in the world? No, they have the knowledge, they understand. Their trainers, their training team, that whole organization around the players help them be their best. Does that mean that that organization are all in their own the best players? No, obviously not. So, you know, there's a definitely... Um, there might definitely be some correlation between having the all the information as a great coach and playing better. Like you said, your coach shouldn't be shooting over 100, but don't expect the best coaches in the world to be, you know, competing on the PGA Tour either, right? So, um, you know, it's a mixture of information, talent, and physicality that makes a great player. Um, and what makes a great coach is understanding all those things. So, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, just just don't seek advice from someone who literally just shanked eight balls yes. in a row and is about to shoot 120. Stop listening. Stop and he's listening telling you that your you're... <laughs> And he's looking uh, up to, and he's telling you that you're keeping your head up too soon. Yeah, like, relax, just dunked, dude. Go see, go, please go see someone who is qualified. He just dunked one in the water and he's telling you that you're lifting your head. Um, I just, I, I've just seen it too many times that I, I, I feel very bad for the people receiving the advice because they don't know any better. And they're the ones getting penalized at the end, not the person giving the advice. That person giving the advice is choosing to do so. But the person who's receiving, who's on the receiving end of that doesn't know any better and thinks that they might actually be improving with the help of this person when the odds are 99.999% of the time, unless the person got really lucky and said the right thing, not happening. Yeah, and with that, uh, on to our interview, like you said. Um, this week, we had our friend from Callaway Golf and uh, PGA Tour manager, uh, Jacob Davidson. He was gracious enough to give us his time to talk about uh, you know, what's been going on tour this last year, uh, how John Rahm came over to Callaway, which is big news for them. So that was exciting to talk about. 
um, and just a bunch of fun stories of things that go on in the tour truck, which I think a lot of you are going to be interested in hearing. It's kind of an insight that we don't get uh, every day. So with that, uh, here's Jacob. All right, dude, welcome to the show. Um, first time having you on our episode. Uh, I guess what I want to ask you before Shine gets into some of the golf questions and some of the tour player questions is how did you find your way into golf? Yeah, thanks guys so much for, for having me on. I, I appreciate it. Aloha from Hawaii. Um, it's 6.15 in the morning here, so uh, excited to be with you guys. Uh, you know, my background in, into golf was played in college and then uh, went on to do my MBA and, and actually ended up coaching in college for five and a half years at the Division One level. And then from there, uh, I was fortunate enough to have an opportunity to join Callaway to, to start up, um, you know, their junior amateur program um, and, and did that for the last couple of years before I moved out to um, be the manager on the PGA Tour. So um, been kind of in competitive golf since I was about 10 years old. So about the last 23 years and excited to be out here um, now on the PGA Tour and, and working with, you know, uh, the best the best players in the world. Was there something specific that drew you to the sport? And when you did start uh, in college, like, was there a reason you wanted to move towards coaching versus playing? Yeah, I think uh, ultimately I knew I wasn't uh, a good enough putter um, to play at the next level. However, you know, I, I think that, you know, for me, um, I'm very business minded. And the fact that I love competitive golf, I loved everything about the game of golf. I loved helping people get better. I loved, um, you know, the equipment side. And, and so really mar marrying all those aspects together um, was a perfect fit on the business side of golf. Um, you know, learning about the marketing and the equipment design, um, as well as, you know, helping competitive golfers figure out their way, navigate um, the process of really making sure they're prepared each week to play their best golf. So I think it, you know, really touches on all the things that um, really excite me and, and really get me pumped up. Nice. And so now at Callaway, you're the tour manager, meaning you travel with the tour and you're working with these players, right? Correct. That's correct. We have, uh, I have an unbelievable team around me. Um, Kellen Watson, uh, Johnny Thompson, Joe Toulon, uh, Simon Wood, Gre Greg Shaw um, are, are traveling out here each week on the PJ Tour along with our truck. And um, our, our goal is, is really, you know, to help our players be prepared each week uh, to play their best. So, you know, whatever changes they may need going into the week, if, if the course conditions are changing, um, you know, this time of year, obviously new product launches. We are launching our new metal woods, uh, some new irons that officially launch today so working with guys on, on making that transition but ultimately you know for us I think uh, you know in the past we've been seen maybe as an equipment partner and for us we're making the transition trying to be seen more as a um, an equipment performance team and, and that you know falls into many different aspects not only providing equipment but you know we've started an analytics division you know we run our players through perform performance combines um, you know we're, we're quarterly meeting with uh their performance team whether that's their their swing coach their caddy their agent their physio their their mental coach um all of the the different people around them and making sure that you know we're all in sync and on the same sheet of music to make sure that these guys are you know firing at, at optimal speed in, in every aspect of their life so um you know it, it's fun it's uh 
it's a lot of work and, and we're excited about the results that we're seeing with some of our top young guys. Nice. Um, I'm going to get to some of the club stuff and definitely we're going to get to the Rambo stuff <laughs> soon. But one thing I wanted to ask was obviously there's a little bit of a mystique for people watching what, you know, when they're watching the tour, how things happen inside the equipment trucks and what's going on. And so, you know, it, it, you kind of get this vibe of like, uh, you know, like a band touring, you know, it's kind of like mm -hmm. a tour bus almost. So like, what's, what's the experience like in that truck? What really goes on outside of individual specific players, you know, um, what are the kinds of things that, that, that tour players can come and get done in the truck? Um, you know, and what are things maybe people don't really realize that, that, that are, they're having done in there? Yeah. Great, great question. So, you know, our truck is really, you know, it kind of has three main points. Uh, the first point is it's a, a mobile warehouse. Um, you know, we're fully stocked on there with, with every piece of equipment um, and every shaft and every grip and every component that we need to build a golf club uh, for anything that, you know, our guys play. So, um, you know, managing the inventory on that is important and making sure that, you know, no matter who comes in there, whether they're right-handed, left-handed, um, you know, build them what they need. Um, and then, and then the second part really is to make sure that, you know, we're equipped to, to build the golf clubs for them. So, um, you know, all of the tools, all of the instruments, all of the gauges, um, that we need in order to, you know, build their clubs. Um, you know, it, it's synced up with, with our pro tour build department in Carlsbad. So no matter where a golf club is built, um, whether it's in Carlsbad or it's on the truck, um, for one of our staffers, we know that, um, you know, we're, we're measuring stuff down to the quarter of a degree. And so, um, really just making sure that it's exactly the same, no matter where it's built for these guys. And then I, I think the third, um, you know, use of our truck is really, it almost does seem a little bit like a, a, a locker room. Um, you know, players will come in, it, it's lonely on the road for these guys and, and, you know, during uh, non-COVID times, you know, they'll come on the truck sometimes just to, to get a break um, if, it's, if it's, you know, hot or if it's raining and, and really just kind of come and hang out with us on the truck. Um, you know, we have an office on the truck that we use for, for meetings uh, for our internal team, you know, each Monday morning to kind of develop a, a game plan for the week. We use it for meeting with, with agents. We use it for meeting with, um, you know, potentially the players, the caddies and their team if we're doing um, kind of our quarterly meetings with them, or sometimes they just want to come in and, and hang out and, you know, take a load off and, um, you know, just, just be with us. So uh, it, it's, it's a fun environment to be in. It's a fun atmosphere. Unfortunately um, in COVID times, we're a little bit limited that only Callaway employees are allowed to be on the truck. So no uh, teachers, players, caddies or anything like that. So we've had to transition away from that, but we're looking forward to hopefully as things get back to normal, we can get guys back on the truck because it's always fun to see them and, and just hang out with them. I have, sure. uh, I have a couple of follow-up questions to that. Um, first off, you guys are probably working with so many different players every week. I would imagine that the, the, the truck can get quite busy with the amount of changes you guys have to make to equipment and whatnot. How far in advance are guys letting you know that they're coming to the truck for a change? Is it just like they walk in and they're letting you guys know like, hey, there's a mess up here and it needs to be done? Or like, maybe I'm not satisfied with this grind. I'm going to go with a different type of grind or whatever for the week. Or are they like, you know, letting you guys know 15, 20, 30 minutes in advance of being like, okay, this player or so-and-so is going to walk in soon for an adjustment? It's different with each player. So I think that, um, you know, one of the 
the jobs that makes um, this, this job tough is really, you know, there's a ton of different personalities from our staff and, and everybody has different ways they do things. So there's guys that are very analytical. There's guys that, you know, plan accordingly. You know, you take a guy like Dylan Fratelli, um, you know, who will specifically schedule time and, and give you, you know, weeks in advance to say, hey, I want, you know, my line lost checked, um, you know, next Wednesday at this time, um, you know, or new grips or that type of thing. And then, you know, you have the guys that, um, you know, the truck pulls out at usually typically about two o'clock on Wednesday afternoon. And, uh, you know, at 145, you, you typically will have two or three guys that know the truck's leaving at two o'clock and, and they'll run in and want some last minute adjustments. So uh, we definitely try to encourage the guys to, to be proactive, to think ahead, um, to reach out. And so it, it just really depends. Um, you know, these guys have a lot of obligations throughout the week, um, depending on when they arrive on Monday based on travel practice rounds, pro-ams, if they have any media obligations. Um, so, you know, we got to work around them and be flexible and, um, you know, but for the most part, I think guys are, are pretty good. And then, you know, it depends on what's going on in their game. You know, sometimes we won't see guys for, you know, a couple of weeks and then, uh, you know, sometimes we'll see them, you know, maybe a couple of weeks in a row or a couple times a day. So um, it just depends on what time of year it is how they're playing, are they making changes in their golf swing where we need to tweak their equipment? So there's multitude of reasons, I think, that kind of um, dictate how much the guys are in there, how much planning is associated with them coming on. So a guy like Phil, for example, okay? So obviously we can't talk Callaway without talking about Philly Mick. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you guys have been working with him for so long that that relationship has to have changed, I would imagine, over the years has it ever come to a point where it's like, you know, Phil and his way of thinking and his personality is so inside and out that you kind of almost understand where he's going to go with certain thing changes, or is he still a little bit of a wild card? Well, he'll come in and he'll say something and you're like, Oh, well, I wasn't expecting that kind of adjustment this week. Sure. So Phil is being that he lives pretty close to our headquarters in Carlsbad and has um, a practice facility in his backyard, as well as access to our ECPC, our performance center there. Um, Phil, typically does the majority of his work um, ahead of time. So now that he's been out for, you know, 25 years on tour, he typically doesn't come in until a little bit later in the week. Um, you know, sometimes that can be as late as Tuesday afternoon just because he doesn't need to play as many practice rounds. So most of the time his work is, is pretty much done ahead of time either at our performance center or um, Garrett Pond, who does a lot of his work back in San Diego, um, will actually go to his house and work with him directly. So for the most part now in, in Phil's career, he's pretty much um, ready to go when he gets there. However, sometimes uh, on the plane ride over, he does get some ideas and, and we'll work with that and, and get him ready. But I think uh, kind of the last couple of years, he's settled down and, and been ready to go when, when he arrives. Our, our boy Dave Neville asked me to ask you about Phil's long driver shaft trend. So he said he wanted you to speak on that a little bit. Sure, sure. So that's something that we've been working on and it's it's growing very popular um, right now. I think that 2021 is going to be the, the year of the longer driver shafts. Uh, yesterday, actually here at the Sony Open, we spoke extensively with Tim Furyk, who will be gaming a 47 and a half inch driver. This week, this is something that we worked with him. Um, Dean from our team is, is really close with Jim and, and went and visited visited him in um, Jacksonville where Jim lives and they were playing Pablo Creek and, and we were fitting him for 
the new Epic prototype driver and believe it or not, um, they went out and, and played a little bit of golf and, and Dean uh, was doing some experimenting himself with the longer driver shaft and uh, Jim picked it up and, and hit it a couple times and uh, was extremely pleased with the initial increase in ball speed and club speed that he saw with it. And, and so he asked Dean to build up uh, a longer driver shaft to his specs. And so we've been working with that through the off season and it's gone really well. And, and Jim's going to put that in, in the bag this week. Um, you know, I think he said that for him, he didn't feel like he lost a lot of um, dispersion on his, his stock swing. So, um, you know, when he's just hitting his stock swing, he didn't feel like the, the misses were much different. I think a lot of that has to do with um, this new Epic prototype driver that we've had. We've seen uh, the, the downrange dispersion tighten up tremendously. I think it's something that we're really excited about. Uh, spoke to John yesterday and, and Xander um, after they played in the Sony Open, and that was kind of their feedback as well. So, uh, that's exciting. I think, you know, Phil has been on this process of the longer driver shaft. I think he was outside of Bryson was probably the, the second person to really go down that path. And, um, we worked with him at the Zozo last year, um, up at, up in LA and, and um, he went into that shaft and, and for him, I think that, you know, he, he's gained a tremendous amount of ball speed. He feels like he's able to, to be more competitive out there with the younger guys. Um, and so for us, it, it's just a matter of getting the loft right and, and making sure that, you know, the swing rate's right and all that type of stuff. But it, it's been fun to work with. And I think that, you know, we're seeing, um, you know, Dylan Fratelli, Jim Furyk, Phil Mickelson. Um, potentially we have another staffer. I, I won't speak exactly to his name yet we're still in the process of testing but he may put in two drivers um coming up in the next week or two i know that you know phil's kind of doing that a little bit he did that at the masters with a, a very strong lofted fairway wood so um as these guys transition into um longer shaft drivers um you know we we've already pivoted as a company and as a tour department and as an r&d department making sure that you know we're able to fill that gap and, and what does that look like now that you know, guys have a big gap in between their drivers and three woods. And how do we close that top half of the bag to make sure that everything's still working right with the gapping? So it's, it's been a fun project for us. Um, and, and we're excited to see kind of where this goes. Speaking to that, I have two follow-up questions. One is, um, you know, seeing that the pros are, are constantly working with new prototypes, like you mentioned, um, and working with new combinations, how quickly this feedback that they give you make its way back up to the engineers and to the team? And how quickly are those changes implemented? And then secondly, is there a fear from the pros that they'll have a worse dispersion with the longer shafts? You know, mm -hmm. especially with a new prototype, I guess that could be something that they think of. So speak to that a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, we we're in constant feedback with, um, you know, Alan Hawk now, who's the head of our R&D department, as well as, you know, guys like Evan Gibbs, who, who run our metal, metal woods division, Scott Manwaring, who's our irons, um, runs our irons division. So we do weekly calls with them. And, you know, that's part of our job out here is to, to gather feedback, um, to gather data based on what we're seeing, provide insight into those guys. So, um, you know, it, it's a it's a relationship where we're in constant communication with them, giving them you know, exactly what the guys are feeling and really, you know, they do a great job of, 
of taking that information and, and using it in design. And especially this last year with, with COVID, when it took us off the road for, you know, almost three months, it gave the tour team um, a really unique opportunity to spend more time uh, with our R&D to people. And, um, you know, Tim Reed and, and Dean and myself and, and really the whole tour team, we did a really deep dive into um, a lot of the product that we have. And, and so I think, you know, that's what excites us the most as a tour team this year is we feel like the stuff that we have coming um, is really tour inspired. And it really was a, a byproduct of the fact that we weren't on the road with, with COVID. Nice. How many of your tour players were still following up with you guys during the lockdown, tinkering with equipment and stuff? Were most of them still keeping up to date or did some of them kind of just take a step back and chilled out a little bit? It, it seemed, uh, you know, for us, we were... Going into it, we, we staged our, our PGA Tour truck down in West Palm because um, we knew that, you know, with, with San Diego and California, the, the uptick in, in positive cases of, of COVID was, was trending that way. And so we wanted to have a second option. If, if our staff did need clubs, um, you know, we could build it. So we had our tour truck down in West Palm. We felt like that was a good opportunity. Our driver lives down there. So when San Diego shut down, we had a second opportunity if someone needed something um you know we could we could build it but we were pleasantly surprised that majority of the the players i think really just said hey this is a great opportunity for me to to take some time off to rest to get my body right to spend some time with family you know with the new wraparound season on the pga tour um these guys don't get a lot of time off so um i think that they were just kind of like everyone else that um you know they kind of shut it down for a couple months and then obviously you know, three to four weeks before Colonial, once they kind of got the final word that, you know, the tour is going to be back up and running, here's where we're going to start, then it picked back up. And, and fortunately for us at that time, um, you know, we were able to open back up our pro tour department in Carlsbad as well as the truck. And, and we just kind of worked out of both of those. So I, obviously uh, at this point, I want to talk a little bit about Rombo. Um you know, being one of the best players in the world, uh, that had to have been extremely exciting to get a, a top five player in the world to kind uh, of kind of want to come and um, change over companies to, to Callaway. So, um, you know, without talking dates or anything crazy, but, you know, I would love to know how that relationship kind of started and, uh, you know, the uniqueness of him when he came in, giving feedback to the equipment he was testing and all of that. Mm hmm. John, John's been, a, you know, someone that we've had our, our eyes on for a long time. We had a relationship with, with John when he was in college at ASU. He, he played a good amount of our equipment from time to time. Um, and so, you know, we knew that, um, you know, John's contract was, was ending this year and John shares the same agent as, as Phil Mickelson. And so there's a relationship there that, that we already had um, with the agency. And, and so, kind of as we were working through, um, you know, COVID and, and trying to start to prepare for what our tour staff was going to look like in, in 2021, um, you know, we, we just said, hey, you know, we, we feel like we want to make a, an effort to, you know, go test with John and, and recruit him. And, and we really did a deep dive um, into his game and, and, and really studied Um, you know, the, the statistics that shot links pulls out, you know, we had our analytics division, look at that. And, you know, from there, we started to begin to get an idea of what we thought would help him in his bag and what areas of his game we felt like we could help him. And if you look at John, you know, he's a world-class 
driver of the golf ball. Um, you know, if the, and if there's one area that we felt like we could help him the best, um, it was just kind of inside of 125 yards. Um, you know, that was an area that I think that we kind of felt like if we could get him into our Chrome Soft X golf ball um, that would provide a little bit more spin around the greens, the ability to flight the golf ball with the wedges and, and really control the trajectory. Um, kind of the same thing that we saw, we saw with Xander Schauffele. We felt like we could really help him. And so um, we went through that process um, and, and really building a set of golf clubs and designing some stuff for John um, as well as, you know, our other tour guys. And, and so as the new line started coming out, um, you know, we were fortunate enough to, to have the opportunity to, to test with John and um, the initial testing went really well. And I think that, you know, what we did to start with was we just introduced the golf ball to John and initially went through the bag and determined which golf ball would be best for him. And we were excited and pleased to hear that, um, you know, the Chrome soft X was the, well, the best fit as far as a launch and spin perspective. And then from there, what we did is we just kind of said, Hey, John, you know, here's some balls. Why don't you go over to the green at the ECPC and really start to get a feel um, for how this golf ball performs. And I think that that was, you know, very eye-opening for John. As he started to hit shots, he saw them, the golf ball launch a little bit lower. Um, and, and then the interaction into the green with the ability to spin it, he um, got ex excited about. And then we went back into the golf bag and, and started to work through the irons and, and dialing those in as well as, and then when he got to the driver and saw the increase in ball speed, um, not only with the golf ball, but the Epic prototype driver i think that that was ultimately the reason why um he made the the transition to callaway nice brandon you want to follow up on that yeah i wanted i noticed that today the the new apex clubs were launched uh seeing that we're recording today on the 12th so i just wanted to know uh, maybe some of his thoughts on that and some of the thoughts that you had about that kind of equipment and the changes that it'll make for some of the tour players and for people who can buy it Sure. So the, the Apex line has really um, been the flagship line in the iron category. It really, um, for the last you know four or five years, it has dominated. And so we're excited to have um, all of the new Apex irons launching today. Um, the Apex 21s, have, which are, are the players' blades, have been out um, probably a couple months on the PGA Tour. And, and initially we saw them go right into the bags of players um you know they have a uh weight on the back court that it's right in the center of the club head that allows us when building the golf clubs to really dial in the the swing weights and so um you know they're a great looking iron a little less bounce um than the previous versions a little bit straighter leading edge but you know guys like um you know mark leishman and adam hadwin and emiliano grillo um you know put those things in right away and then you kind of move into the apex uh, TCBs, which stand for tour cavity back. Um, these are the irons that John Rahm, Xander Schauffele, um, Sam Burns are playing, um, you know, a, a great looking iron that have a thin top line um, blend very well. If, if someone wants to kind of do a, a mix set where they want the blades and the lower irons and, and maybe a little bit more forgiveness in the longer irons. So um, the, the one thing that we've seen with, with these apex irons is just the 
the amazing um, tightness and spin through the bag. So, um, you know, it's, it's been, I think if there's anything that we've seen initially is just how consistent the spin numbers are, um, you know, from club to club, especially when guys are, are hitting, you know, half shots or, or knockdown shots or, or working, um, you know, on a, on a field shot through the wind. So, and then up from there, um, we move into the Apex 21s, which are a, a great, um, looking iron that I think are, are going to do really well. And, and we've had several guys testing these, especially kind of in that um, five, four iron, uh, four and five iron. So uh, we're excited about those. And, and then obviously the Apex iron, which have been the number one selling iron, I think for the last four or five years, um, you know, it's a little bit more of a, a kind of that mid handicap, you know, a three to, to 10 handicap um, iron has been, you know, very well received. And, and we don't see that too much out here on the PJ tour. However, um, you know, that iron has done extremely well on the LPJ tour, um, as well as the champions tour. And I know that just hearing the initial feedback from the reps that are working out there, um, they're real excited about the initial, um, launch of those and, and how many people are already putting them in the bag. So we're excited about the whole apex line. I think that, you know, every golfer is going to have, a, um, an opportunity to, to fit into something that, you know, they like and will give them great results. Nice. One thing I wanted to ask you was that over the past couple of years, you see a lot um, Callaway mentioning that they're using AI. You guys are mm -hmm. using AI to design irons and drivers. And I wanted to maybe get a little bit of insight into how exactly that works. Is it data from the tour and from amateur players that's going into some sort of program and then, you know, that's being used to optimize clubs? Is it what type of data sets are being used? Uh, how does the AI actually improve the club um, and, and clubs? And how does that design change over time? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, for us, when we look at, you know, how, how do we make our, our tour players play better? How do we make the average golfer play better? And, you know, for us, when we look at um, the statistics, what we found is the difference between the guy that's ranked number one in proximity to the hole from the fairway from 125 to 150 yards out and the difference to the guy that's ranked 50th on tour um, in proximity to the hole from the fairway is about three feet. So, um, you know, there's not a huge difference in, you know, um, being number one and number 50th in this category. And so, you know, that's kind of um, our, our mission statement uh, for our, our tour team right now is, is three feet. You know, how can we just find a couple inches um, to help our players play better? Is that because, um, you know, they need to be, work harder on their fitness? They need to make sure that we have all their law flies correctly. Do we need to make sure their gapping's right? Do we need to make sure that, you know, we're giving them the most consistent product that we can um, year in and year out? And so for us, you know, that's that's what we're chasing. And that's really where the industry's going. And I think that, you know, I'm proud to be a part of a company that we're leading that charge and, and making massive investments and chasing consistency. And, and you see it, you know, all across um, our company right now from, you know, the investment that we made in Chicopee, Massachusetts with our ball factory and, and implementing robotics and, you know, 3D scanning and um, automation and, and, you know, all that stuff. I think that we've made over the last couple of years, you're seeing a golf ball now that's coming out that is the most consistent golf ball on the market. There's nothing else like it. And so, you know, you look at, 
not only in golf ball, but in clubs, you know, we're leading, like you talked about leading the industry and using AI and machine learning um, to really introduce design elements. And, and that goes as far as, um, you know, the face thickness across, you know, our, our metal woods and, and having different faces for each loft and each model. Um, and, and Alan's team is, is really doing a phenomenal job with that. And, and I think that we can all agree that, you know, that's, that's where, um, you know, the world's going is, you know, these computers and the supercomputers are able to, to, you know, just expedite the process of so many different types of prototypes and iterations that, you know, would have taken months upon months in, in future years. So, um, you know, with that, not only is the AI helping in the design standpoint, but, you know, it's also helping in, you know, the tooling and the manufacturing and, you know, Mark Leposky and his team is really um, doing some amazing things in the manufacturing process, um, you know, revamping forging and all types of new metals and um, new tooling and, and laser seaming systems and really tidying up tolerances. And so um, I think from a, from a company standpoint, you know, for us, um, we're not going to stop until we can, you know, get the best at, you know, every club that's made is to the tightest tolerance and the most consistent. And no matter where you buy that club, you know, um, it's going to be the, exactly the same. So for us, it, it's exciting. We're learning. I think that, you know, AI has opened us up to, you know, new ideas and, and new design elements that we've never thought of. And, and I think that it's just going to help us um, on to the next frontier of what that looks like, whether it's, um, you know, a new version of, of jailbreak, um, which we have in this near this year's line called speed frame, um, as well as, you know, continuing to work on the face to make sure that no matter where um, you hit it on the face that, you know, um, the ball speed still there as well as, you know, the, the proper spin and launch conditions. Nice. From what I understood with the AI, it's kind of like the level of detail that goes into every individual possible combination for these clubs is almost like tour level spec, right? Like people are getting, people are able to get now like such perfect level detail into their clubs right off the shelf. So it's pretty interesting to see how that AI is definitely improving the clubs. Um, you mentioned the Chicopee facility. That was going to be my next question. You know, Callaway, it's, publicly known to now have invested a lot of money into that facility so i kind of wanted to know what are your thoughts on that place have you visited what's it like i'd love to visit that place because it looks super interesting but with covid now can't really go anywhere <laughs> maybe kind of give us an eye into that into that facility sure it, it it is uh we had we were fortunate enough to to go up there um this year when the, the tour event was in boston we were able to drive down and and spend a, a good half day uh, with Norm Smith and his team at the ball factory. And that was our first time seeing it, it finalized after, you know, they made the huge investment in the golf ball. And it was, um, you know, an unbelievable experience to, to go through the factory, to tour it, to, to meet the workers, um, you know. And I think that one thing we're proud is the investment, you know, in keeping our manufacturing in America, um, in the town of Chicopee. It's just a, a great town and so um, we're so excited about that opportunity. And really, I think that, you know, the innovation that they did and, and they spent, you know, this wasn't um, something that happened overnight. This process has been in place, um, this investment for really a couple of years now. And I think that, you know, we finally got it 
um, down and, and really seeing the, the technology, I think of really the inspection process was the, the area that I thought was the most impressive, um, you know, the 3D scanners and, and how that they were specifically designed and, and no one else has them and the ability to make sure that every golf ball that comes off the line that is boxed up um, is to the tighter tolerances. And, and I think that, you know, for us, you know, on the tour department, you know, we want to make sure that we have um, the most consistent golf ball week in and week out. But it's so encouraging to see that not only is the, is the tour team having that, but, you know, if your average golfer goes and buys that off the shelf of their local golf store, they're getting the same golf ball that's made on the same line under the same amount of tolerances. And so, um, you know, Chip and his team has is, is done a, a great job. And I think that, you know, it, they've put a strong infrastructure in place that's going to allow us to continue to build on our golf ball business. And I think that, you know, with the success that we've seen um, with guys like, you know, Mark Leishman and, and Xander Schauffele and, and John Rom putting it in next next are in the bag last week, I really, I think confirmed that, you know, our golf ball is exactly where we want it. And I think that it's going to open some eyes for some people in the next year. Nice. Um, a couple of, uh things i wanted to ask you just before we end here because i know that you're very busy especially with the tournament this week there is that with covid obviously now restricting people's travel and um limiting what the fans can do and where they can go how have you noticed the experience for guys like you um change out on tour like we interviewed a few tsn guys here in canada after the masters week and they had said that although it was a little bit lacking with the sound of having the patrons out at the masters that it was such an unbelievable unique experience being able to for example follow tiger with no one around them mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. i wanted to know what your take on that experience has been the last year it's it's definitely been different for us i think that we've enjoyed it um being around we, we miss the fans they're, they're definitely not that energy there um especially when you start getting into the majors i mean i think that anytime that you're going to a major uh typically guys you know just they're a little bit more on edge they're a little bit more serious i think that you know the crowds play a major factor into that and all the minimum that leads up to that however um you know this year has been different and i think for us you know guys maybe feel a little bit more laid back we're there monday tuesday and wednesday only so we're not during there during competition day so i'm sure that it's much different and, and the energy level's not there to feed off of when they're playing good or the roars that august on the back nine those types of things but for us on the the practice rounds leading up we feel like guys are, are maybe it's a little more laid back because um you know the, the fans aren't there as well and it's just the the tour guys, the, the caddies and the equipment reps are, are really the only people on the tee. So for us, I felt like it's, it's been a good opportunity to build relationships. Guys have, have been more open to testing. Guys have been more open to just maybe hanging out, um, you know, enjoying being outside. Obviously, you know, the days of hanging out in the locker room or player dining necessarily really haven't been an option under COVID time. So more guys are just hanging around the putting green or on the tee, um, spending more time practicing because they don't want to go back to the hotel and, and just hang out in their rooms. So it's been a, a really good opportunity for us. And, and then really also is the ability for us to get on the golf course and, and go watch our staff players play a couple holes. Um, you know, when you're fighting crowds, that's, that's a tough um, task. But now that there's no crowds out there, you know, you'll have 
certain events where, you know, maybe there's two or three holes that run relatively close to the, the, the driving range where, um, you know, a guy, we just fit him into maybe a new driver or something like that. And, and, you know, we want to go out in the golf course and make sure that it's performing well on the course, not just on the driving range. So, you know, we'll go walk a, a loop of two or three holes with him to make sure that everything's working good. He'll hold a couple balls, different shots on the course to make sure that everything looks good. So that's been fun. I think that's something that has been a, a positive through all this. However, um, you know, we miss the fans. I think the players miss the fans and it's, it, they really make the event special when they're there. Yeah, I can imagine, especially when you're watching on TV, it makes such a huge difference. It's so interesting now to hear all the little murmurs and sounds and words <laughs> that are being exchanged, especially with no fans there, but it's obviously an energy that people are missing. Um, I guess one of my last questions is going to be, uh, you know, there's so many different personalities on tour. And I think mm -hmm. out of everyone we've interviewed, you probably might have the most experience with everyone. Um, you know, there's guys that are very serious and there's guys that are mm -hmm. way more laid back. So, like, are there any I, I guess my first question is, is there anyone who's coming to the truck and just like some story that made you laugh, like looking back, how funny or ridiculous it was? And then my second question is, I guess the, the most like crazy or extreme or exaggerated change you've ever seen someone come in and ask for where you kind of like were thrown back like what you want this <laughs> yeah i mean i think that each each guy's different like you talked about and um it's there's uh let me i'm trying to think of a couple stories here that yeah, what you can say what, and what, what you can't right? <laughs> what we can say and, and and what we can't say um you know i i think that for us um you know guys are each week, you know, it's a new challenge. And, um, as far as, as requests come from, from building, uh, you know, there, there's certain guys that, um, you know, kind of come up with, with some crazy ideas, um, when they're sitting around or they're not playing good, um, whether that could be with putters, with shafts, um, you know, guys asking us to bend offset into irons, take offset out of irons. Um, you don't you have know. to name names, but you could just maybe give us an example of, of, of a specific change, you know? Yeah, I think uh, so this past year we had a player, um, a, a very well-known player that uh, – was, was playing with a, a member at his course and uh, played with his, his Maverick uh, Pro Irons um, and, and played very good with them. And so he had asked us to make the same specs um, that were almost completely polar opposite of what he's been playing uh, throughout the year because he was hitting the irons that he was playing back home with one of his members. And, and uh, so we were, you know, trying to encourage him not to do that. Um, we <laughs> felt like it was, uh, we were going down a little bit of a rabbit trail. However, he was adamant about it and he actually put him in play um, and played relatively well with him. But uh, the next week when, when he was at the U S open, uh, we had an opportunity to work with him with his coach and, and kind of talked him back off the, the cliff and got him back to where he needed to be. So sometimes, you know, um, we've seen guys show up um, with typically usually a lot of times with, with three woods or five woods um, that they just will steal out of, um, you know, random people's bags. You know, they could be regular shafts, stiff shafts. Um, I think that, You know, for us, that's the hardest club to fit, right? That three wood. It, it's such a unique club when you're hitting it off the ground, um, hitting it off of the tee. And so when guys find that uh, a club that they like, 
you know, they, they're, they're constantly looking forward. And just yesterday um, on the driving range here at, at Sony open, um, we were talking with a player and um, he had a, an older driver that uh, he really liked and he couldn't find any more of it as well as a, as an odyssey putter. Um, and he's, he's, he ordered um, a couple putters and a couple drivers off eBay over the Christmas holidays to oh see God. if he, if, if he could get them right. Um, and, and they weren't right. And so he had to return them, but you know, it, that's the funny things is, you know, guys, when they're at home, sometimes they want to go back to, you know, maybe a club that they played 10 years ago that they had success with. And they think that, you know, that club was, you know, the reason why they had the success. And so um, fortunately, a lot of times those are short lived, you know, they'll go revisit it or they'll bring it out of the garage. Um, You know, I think uh, Jim Furyk actually yesterday was saying that, there was an old wedge that he couldn't find um, that he was looking for that he really liked um, one of the Mac daddy wedges. And, and he was putting together a, a set of golf clubs for his girlfriend's son to go play golf with him over the break. And he was up in a simulator room and he grabbed some things and um, he was looking down at the wedge and he was like, man, this wedge looks really good. And, and so uh, he, he didn't put it in the bag. He actually put it in his bag and, um, <laughs> we worked with them uh, throughout the break to, to get him one that a newer one that was similar um, to those, but it was just a, a spec that he hadn't played in a while. So, you know, those things happen all the time where guys go through their garage and they find older things or they grab things out of buddy's bags or stuff like that. So um, well, it, very, it's, very it's always fun to see guys, what these right? guys can come up with. Yes. They're, they're yeah. always chasing for something. Creatures I'll tell habit. you what, being a, being a coach of, numerous professionals i can confirm what he's talking about because some of the text messages i get from some of these guys i work with about these random clubs they found and they just get these ideas in their head and you get your first instinct is always yeah i gotta steer this person as far away from this idea as i quickly as i can before they go down kind of what he said a rabbit hole of you know just your swing starts adapting to the club which wasn't properly fit for you to begin with Mm -hmm. and it can be a disaster yeah. And that's, that's a great point. And that's something that, you know, we've done, a, I think a, a really good job and it's been an initiative for our tour team over the last maybe year or two is, is really having a deep understanding of what we call the swing DNA of each player. And, and you know, when guys are struggling, um, you know, and we're walking into work with them, you know, we know, um, what the numbers look like when, when they're swinging good, whether it's, you know, their, their path or their attack angle or their club head speed. And so, um, you know, if they're not swinging it, like we know that they're supposed to, you know, our first call is we'll pump the brakes and, and we'll reach out to their swing instructor um, like yourself and say, Hey, you know, what, what are you guys working on? Is this where you want them? Um, because sometimes, you know, if they haven't seen their instructor or maybe they've been on the road for a couple of weeks, their, their body's not performing well. And, you know, they're a little tight in one area, they start swinging and getting into some bad habits. And, you know, from that standpoint, sometimes, you know, we may be able to give them some new equipment that is a, a quick fix or a bandaid fix, but ultimately, you know, that's not going to be aligned with where their swing instructor wants them to go. So, um, I think that that's something that's really helped us out a lot is, you know, going into those fittings is to know, okay, if we're working with, with Xander, we know exactly what his number should be. And if he's not there, then, you know, we let him know, Hey, you know, let's, let's maybe wait till tomorrow, you know, work with your dad for a little bit, or let's bring your dad in to make sure that everything's just fine. And I think that's kind of helped us, you know, not go down some of these rabbit holes. 
Nice. I have two final questions, unless Cheyenne has anything else to ask. Shine. Nope. Okay. I'll let you rock and roll because he's busy as it is. So yeah, my first question was going to be: We ask everyone this, and that would be who's playing in your dream foursome, you included. And my second question is: Is Phil's coffee actually that good? <laughs> yes, I would highly encourage everyone to get Phil's coffee. Um, he he launched it and and sent uh, a ton of it, as well as a, a great little cup um, to everyone at HQ. So. Uh, I think that the Callaway family has embraced it. Uh, I don't think we've taken it to the same level he has where we've completely cut out eating um, and only drinking coffee. But uh, he, he truly believes in it. And, uh, you know, this year on the tour truck, uh, once hopefully things calm down and you guys um, can hopefully come out to a tour event, uh, we'll be brewing some of that on the truck. So nice. um, you can come in and, and get a, a cup of it. It, it. It's really good. And I think that, you know, that's a, a, a cool thing that he's doing with that. So uh, as far as, as the dream foursome, um, I think that, you know, definitely my dad would be in it. My dad was was the the guy that introduced me to the game of golf. And, and we still, um, you know, play a lot of golf and, and he's a, a, a huge golfer. So I think that, you know, we definitely w- would want to be a part of that. And then I think, you know, for people that are living that are still playing, I think that, you know, Obviously, I'm biased to Callaway, but right now I think it would be, you know, John, John Rahm and, and Xander, just because I think that you're not going to find two nicer guys right now. And uh, we've enjoyed working with them. They're they're fun. Um, they're laid back. However, you know, they're two of the most competitive people that um, you'll ever be around. And, and they're they're different in their personalities. Um, you know, John's very sarcastic um and likes to to poke you doesn't like to be told that he can't do something (laughs) and then you know xander's a little bit more of of you know the quiet guy that um you know kind of likes to have a good time and um you know lets his clubs do the talking so um i did think of one more story uh i know i kind of sidestepped your your funny story question uh there earlier but i did kind of think of one so it was this past year at the zozo championship um phil mickelson had just come off his first champions tour when he he now is hitting his 47 and a half inch driver on the driving range he's, he's hitting balls next to xander shafle um who if you remember had just finished second at the cj cup in vegas played played very well and, and unfortunately did not um you know come out on top and so they're hitting balls next to each other and, and we're working on their clubs and um you know phil is left-handed xander's right-handed so they're facing each other as they're hitting balls and so phil um just kind of looks over at xander and says uh hey um how'd you play last week you know with a with a big smile on his face as he you know is back in the winner's circle and, and is a little bit giddy after winning on the champions tour. And, uh, you know, Xander gives it this very humble smile, um, and looks up at Phil and, and is kind of laughing and, and didn't really miss a beat and said, well, well, how much money did you win last week, <laughs> Phil? Um, and so Phil didn't miss a beat either and, and kind of laughed and said, are we talking last week or in career? And oh, so, man. um, it was, That's it a was shot. a funny exchange that I think that, you know, those guys play a lot of golf together back in, um, Carlsbad, San Diego area. And so they got a lot of 
a lot of uh, competitive juices going and, and enjoy playing with each other. But, you know, that's that's the fun part of seeing these guys out here kind of interact. And, you know, I think that they're just like us, right? They like to have a good time. They like to trash talk. Um, but well, I'm you sure know, there's some of the best trash story. talkers out there for sure. Yeah, I bet you absolutely. Some of those private skins games, that must be fun to be a fly on the wall as well. <laughs> absolutely. Well, Jacob, I really want to thank you for coming on and giving us your time. I know that you're busy and uh, especially with the tour traveling so much. So I really appreciate it. And um, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're excited. We're excited about all the new product we got, um, you know, this week in Sony. We've had a, a great um, launch of, of the new woods, um, the Epic prototype woods. So, um, you know, yesterday was the first day of, of kind of working with guys. And I think that you know, we see, we saw a lot of success and, and we're looking forward to, to next week at the American Express kind of rolling out, um, you know, what the Epic prototype driver is and, and all the performance benefits of it. So um, hang tight. And I think that this year's product line, you know, with the, the Epic Woods and the Apex line irons is really going to give us a, a unique opportunity to, to be successful out on tour. Awesome, dude. Thank you very much. Thanks, bud. Thanks. Thanks, guys, for having me. Thanks again to all of the wonderful sponsors of our show, Callaway Golf, Trackman, Aerotech Golf Shafts, and Superspeed Golf. And remember, if you want to hit the ball 20 yards farther, all you got to do is head over to superspeedgolf.com and use the code SHKEEN for 10% off your order. That's S-H-K-E-E-N for 10% off your order at superspeedgolf.com.